Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good thing I kept my MySpace. Right, Tom? The lead starts right now. The crisis is expanding thousands of pages of leaked internal Facebook documents, revealing even more troubling problems from human trafficking to fomenting violence. What did Zuckerberg know and when did he know it? Then, perhaps not just one, but two COVID vaccines could soon be available for your young kids. What Moderna just announced about its shot. Plus, what went wrong on set? CNN has just learned the assistant director who handed that gun to Alec Baldwin had been fired from a previous movie after a crew member was injured in a gun incident. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with our tech lead today and the damning fallout from the Facebook papers, a vast trove of newly leaked documents from inside the social media giant. These records were provided to journalists by Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. They provide alarming new insights into how the company has repeatedly failed to stop the spread of extremism or hate speech or illegal activities on its platform. The documents suggest Facebook executives care far more about keeping you engaged and addicted to scrolling, as one expert calls it, an addiction engine. CNN's Doni O'Sullivan joins me now live. And Doni, one of Facebook's most high-profile Failures was the Stop the Steal rally, which ultimately became, of course, the deadly January 6th insurrection. That's right, Jake. And we're learning from these documents that there are so many missed signals, really missed warnings when it came to the Stop the Steal movement. I mean, we could all see in those months, last November, last December, uh, that this was getting violent, that there was a lot of overlap with violent movements. uh, But Facebook acted too late. Have a watch. Facebook didn't invent hate, but do you think it's making hate worse? Unquestionably, it's making hate worse. Thank you. Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan testifying before the British Parliament today, warning Facebook will keep fueling violence around the world if changes are not made. Hogan spent months photographing thousands of internal company documents before leaving the tech giant in May. What Francis has given us is an extraordinary archive of material that helps us see exactly what's going on and what they know is going on. And uh, it is the biggest and most important contribution to understanding this incredibly important problem that we've ever had. Revelations from those documents Haugen provided to Congress show just how deeply ingrained Facebook's problems are. How did you guys hear about this event today? Uh, Through Facebook. The documents exposing a very different narrative than how Facebook described their attempts to crack down on Stop the Steal. I visited a Stop the Steal protest in Pennsylvania right after the 2020 election. Uh, Facebook events, Instagram, how have you been promoting this? Uh, Well, I created a Facebook event for yesterday's event, and I posted after the fact that we were again coming today. I will be again making another event in regards to tomorrow, but I'm going to continue to use the platform that I have on social media to promote. The lies spread at Stop the Steel rallies generated a movement that helped fuel the January 6th insurrection. 
But in the days after the attack, Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg played down her company's role. Um, we, again, took down QAnon, Proud Boys, Stop the Steal, anything that was talking about possible violence last week. However, internal Facebook documents show employees suggesting the company was at least partly to blame. As stories based on the documents began to publish, Facebook executive Nick Clegg wrote to colleagues in an internal post this weekend obtained by CNN, warning them to prepare for more bad headlines and that at the heart of these stories is a premise which is plainly false, that we fail to put people who use our service first. But an internal experiment the company ran in 2019 shows the potential harm caused by Facebook's algorithm. A staffer set up a test account designed to look like a conservative mom living in North Carolina. The account started by liking pages such as Donald Trump and Fox News, but within a few weeks, Facebook was recommending QAnon pages and even a page apparently linked to the tree presenter militia. So these are like potato chips that they feed to somebody who's got a potato chip addiction. And that is the reality of the platform. It is an addiction engine, and it profits the more it can manipulate us to consume what we want to consume most. It's not just politics. The documents reveal for years the company has struggled to crack down on how its platforms are used to promote human trafficking. CNN last week identifying multiple Instagram accounts purporting to offer domestic workers for sale, including photos and descriptions of women like age, height and weight. Facebook taking the accounts down only after being asked about them by CNN, confirming the accounts broke its rules. What we're hearing from Facebook is platitudes and bromide. Facebook is unable to police itself unable to impose self-moderation. Facebook, of course, pushing back on all of this, a lot of this, uh, saying that they do put people uh, over profit, put safety uh, over profit. But Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, she has receipts. She's got all of these documents. And she now also has the attention of lawmakers on both sides of the Atlantic. The question, Jake, of course, will be, will these politicians do anything about it? All right, Donia Sullivan, thanks so much for joining us to discuss. New York Times tech reporter Shira Frankel, she, of course, is also the co-author of the book An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Shira, good to see you again. So reading through these papers, what is your biggest takeaway? I think it's shocking how many times employees within Facebook really did the research and showed their own executives how deep the problems in the company ran. I, I think as a reporter on the outside, We sort of had an inkling to some of this. We had a lot of examples. We ran our own sort of research in a limited way. But the research done by Facebook's employees is incredibly comprehensive. And to know that they were sitting on all this, they were sitting on all this really hard data about the harms their company was doing and didn't change course, I I think that's just really startling. One of the leaked uh, Facebook documents includes uh, details about an internal, internal experiment. A Facebook employee created a fake account Uh, for a fictitious person who would be a conservative-leaning North Carolina mom. Within a few weeks, Facebook was recommending that this fictitious mom check out QAnon pages that deranged uh, cult, and even a page apparently linked to the three percenter militia. This was 2019. I mean, the calls were coming from inside the house a long time ago. 
Absolutely. And actually, that same researcher, that same Facebook researcher created another account where she posed as an Indian national in the midst of their elections to show how as a new person joining Facebook in India, she was led to hate speech, to violence, to misinformation. I mean, this research was replicated time and time again internally to show how people joining the platform for the first time are driven by Facebook's own algorithms to hate speech and misinformation. It wasn't a one off. It was something Facebook replicated time and again in their experiments. Interesting you bring up India because you have reported that 87% of Facebook's budget for flagging misinformation, 87% focused here in the U.S., that means 13% for the rest of the planet, uh, even though the vast majority of daily active users are, are outside North America these days. Uh, that seems pretty alarming, and I'm sure it has real consequences. Right. And I would hope that lawmakers all over the world, including in India, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, where a lot of violence, real world violence has broken out because and tied to what they've seen on Facebook. I I hope those lawmakers take notice and start to demand more of Facebook. I do think that there are precedents being set where countries can say, hey, if you want to do business in our country, we need to know you've dedicated a bare minimum of staff to monitoring the content that comes out of this country. Facebook says that its company should not be the only social media company facing this scrutiny. Uh, They point to YouTube. They point to Twitter. Do they have a point? You know, there's absolutely a point there in that all social media plays a role in this. However, I think Facebook can't really, you know... They have to admit that they're the biggest here, and it's hard for them to point fingers at the others when they know they have such a dominant space in this market. There are a lot of free speech absolutists out there who say that this is all just an attempt by the media and people in the government to suppress debate, to stifle dissension. Um, What do you make of that? I mean, obviously, there are free speech concerns here. We don't want people to feel like they can't voice their opinion, even if it's an unpopular opinion. By the same token, Uh, There are clear detrimental effects to to letting human trafficking or lies about vaccines take root. Yeah, Jake, I'm so glad you brought that up because that argument, that free speech concern is something Facebook wants everybody fixated on. It means that everyone gets stuck in a debate about what you are and are not allowed to say. And you can see how lawmakers and really the American public can be mired in that for decades to come. But instead, I think what these documents point to and what the Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen has encouraged people to focus on is Facebook's algorithms, the recommendation engine. I mean, what this comes down to is that people should be able to say what they want to say within the bounds of reason. But should Facebook have the right to amplify it? Should Facebook be recommending it? If you want to promote a conspiracy, that might be your business. But why should Facebook be allowed to push Americans into conspiracies? We're going to hear uh, from executives from Snapchat and TikTok And YouTube tomorrow, they're going to testify before a Senate subcommittee. What does the release of the Facebook papers mean for other social media companies? You know, I think they're going to be looking at their own internal research. They're going to be asking their own employees not to leak that internal research. I think Facebook's not the only company who's looking at itself like this. I know for a fact that Twitter has run similar surveys, as has YouTube. And I think all these companies know that eventually the attention will turn to them. And there's a way for them right now to try and get ahead of it. How? How do do they get ahead of it? 
they can release their own research. They can, I think, take the opposite course of what Facebook has done. Facebook has interestingly tried to discredit their own researchers, which I think is a shame because they've really taken the time to hire some of the best data scientists in the world. These are people that come out of Stanford, Harvard, Yale. They've got an amazing background and resume in conducting this kind of research. Why not elevate what they've done? Why not say, hey, look at how hard we've tried to look at this problem. Let's make it Let's make it open to anyone. Let's make it an academic resource that anyone can come and study and other platforms could follow suit. I mean, I know there are discussions in some of these tech companies of doing exactly that and really posing a very transparent alternative to how Facebook has gone about things. Lawmakers have certainly done a good job bringing attention to this. Uh, And certainly this is at the very least something that the public should know about. Um, But beyond that, what can be legislated, if anything, uh, to improve uh, what Facebook does right now? You, I mean, is there a law that could be written, don't have your algorithm uh, send conspiracy theory videos to people? I, I have a difficult time imagining what a law would look like. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're looking for the language around that law right now. I think that really the first thing we're going to see laws about is going to be stricter laws around protections in children. That's something that Democrats and Republicans can always get on board with, that they want children to be more protected. And it's something that the Wall Street Journal series focused on very, very early on. What are the harms to teens on some of these platforms? So I imagine the first legislation is going to be around that. But the more complicated and more important legislation is going to be around algorithms. And I do think that they're going to eventually perhaps settle on a model where if Facebook recommends things that they themselves say they don't want to recommend, that they'll be penalties and fines. For instance, Facebook says they're not going to send people to anti-vaccine misinformation, but if it repeatedly recommends that people join groups spreading anti-vaccine misinformation, there should be some kind of penalty. That's that's one example of a law I've heard lawmakers discussing right now. All right, Shira Frankel, thank you so much. Appreciate your expertise and your time. Coming up, a group of New York City workers shut down the Brooklyn Bridge in a protest against vaccine mandates. Plus, breaking news, CNN has learned that the assistant director who handed that gun to Alec Baldwin last week had been fired before over an incident with a gun. Stay with us. In our health lead today, massive crowds of protesters shutting down the fabled Brooklyn Bridge today. They are enraged over New York City's Friday deadline for city workers to get vaccinated or risk losing their jobs. This morning, the police union president in Chicago called the mayor there a, quote, tyrant for enforcing the shots for police officers requirement. But as CNN's Alexandra Field reports, there is some good news on the horizon with plummeting cases and hospitalizations and vaccines for little ones, which could be just weeks away. Smaller dose vaccines for younger children. Moderna releasing new data showing its shots for children ages 6 to 11 are safe and effective while saying they'll seek emergency authorization from the FDA soon. It shows that that smaller dose is still sufficient for younger kids, that it creates just as strong, if not stronger, of an antibody response with potentially fewer side effects because your body is being exposed to less of that immunogenic material. This as the FDA prepares to review Pfizer's smaller dose vaccines for kids as young as five tomorrow. Shots in arms could come in the next two weeks. It's entirely possible, if not very likely, that vaccines will be available for children from five to 11 within the first week or two of November. Halloween comes even sooner. That's not causing much concern for health officials. I would say put on those costumes, stay outside and enjoy your trick or treating. 
Passionate pleas for more people to get vaccinated continue. No one likes to be ordered to, but in the end, if you can get vaccinated and think of someone else and think of what that could mean to them and their survivability from something like this, we'll all be better off. Fox News's Neil Cavuto is immune compromised. He tested positive for COVID and he credits vaccines for saving his life. Hundreds of protesters, including New York City firefighters and sanitation workers, shut down part of the Brooklyn Bridge today, protesting the mayor's vaccine mandate for all city workers. They must have their first shot by this Friday. Over the weekend, outside Brooklyn's Barclays Center, another protest against the Nets' decision to keep basketball star Kyrie Irving off the court. He still refuses to get his shot. As an organization, they're pro-vaccine, and I think that they're going to try and, and keep their stance on this, despite you know the, the distraction this could become. The opposite stance from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a vocal opponent of COVID-related mandates. Over the weekend, he made a pitch to attract police from places with vaccine mandates. I'm going to hopefully sign legislation that gives a $5,000 bonus to any out-of-state law enforcement that relocates in Florida. So NYPD, Minneapolis, Seattle, if you're not being treated well, uh, we'll treat you better here. You can fill important needs for us and we'll compensate you as a result. He now denies it has anything to do with vaccines. It will be available to anyone who comes. And so if people are trying to say it's a vaccine issue, it's not, has nothing to do with that. They've been mistreated for a long time. And Jake, back here in New York City with the mandate for that deadline now looming just days away, the union representing the NYPD has filed a lawsuit opposing the vaccine mandate. In it, they say that enforcement of the mandate which results in fewer officers on the job would threaten morale within the department and threaten public safety. Uh, the mayor was asked about this last week. He says there are contingencies in place. Jake. All right, Alexander Field in New York. Thanks so much. Coming up next, it sparked a new feud between Dr. Anthony Fauci and Senator Rand Paul. The facts about the research that the U.S. was funding in Wuhan, China. That's next. In our health lead, we now know that a bat coronavirus was enhanced in a lab, but not the one you're thinking of. The National Institutes of Health acknowledged that it funded research of a virus that was studied at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The experiment unexpectedly, we're told, made a bat coronavirus more contagious than the original naturally occurring one. But we're also told this was not COVID-19. Dr. Fauci says it's, quote, molecularly impossible that the virus, which has killed almost 5 million people worldwide, was the same one funded by the NIH. CNN's Kristen Holmes breaks down now all of this debate that started between a fiery exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci, which also then led to the NIH disclosure. A new letter raising questions about experiments in a Wuhan lab and sparking Republican outrage. For years, the National Institutes of Health provided grant money to the EcoHealth Alliance Research Group, which conducted experiments with bat coronaviruses in Wuhan, China. Republicans have claimed that this federally funded research could have started the coronavirus pandemic, an allegation health experts say is impossible. Anybody that knows anything about viral biology and phylogeny, phylogeny of viruses know that it is molecularly impossible for those viruses that were worked on to turn into SARS-CoV-2 because they were distant enough molecularly. 
Dr. Fauci has also defended the grants provided to the Wuhan lab and denied that any federal dollars were spent on so-called gain-of-function experiments conducted there, which can make viruses more infectious. The NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Leading to heated exchanges on Capitol Hill. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about. Now in a new letter, the National Institutes of Health says EcoHealth Alliance conducted an experiment that found mice infected with an altered bat coronavirus became sicker than those infected with the unchanged virus. An unexpected result that was never reported to NIH despite the terms of the grant. A spokesman for EcoHealth Alliance told the New York Times the group had reported the findings, quote, as soon as we were made aware. But Republicans claim this proves Dr. Fauci lied about the type of experiments conducted by the lab. He's going to continue to dissemble and try to work around the truth and massage the truth. Health officials stress this is about accountability, not about any possibility the pandemic started in the lab. Yeah, they've messed up. Uh, We are going to hold them accountable. But let me be clear, this was in no way, no way connected with the advent of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And Jake, of course, we hear what the health officials are saying, but this raises a lot of questions. If there were more things that EcoHealth Alliance did not actually report, were there more things that the NIH was unaware of? They didn't learn about these experiments until years later. So it raises the question, what else could have been going on at this lab that went unreported or that NIH just wasn't aware of? All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He's a CNN medical analyst, a cardiologist, and a professor at George Washington University Medical Center. So Dr. Reiner, it seems clear that EcoHealth was doing gain of function, meaning making a, a virus deadlier, more, more um, contagious. It was doing that, but it wasn't necessarily, that wasn't necessarily the intent of this experiment. So when conservatives say that this all proves that Fauci has not been honest, is that right? Is, is that what it proves? No, that's not how I look at it. I think it's important to understand the intent of the research and the effect of the research. So the intent of the research was to understand whether certain bat coronavirus spike proteins could infect human cells. And the way they did the experiment was they took a well-known bat coronavirus called WIV1, and they added to that some uh, other bat uh, coronavirus spike proteins, and they gave that to mice altered to have the receptor, the ACE2 receptor that humans have that the virus uses to enter human cells. And what they found was, yes, they could, uh, those spike proteins could enter human cells. uh, But they also noticed that the enhanced virus then was more virulent. Okay. So, so, so they proved that they, that those spike proteins could enter human cells, but in so doing, they made the virus they used uh, more deadly, essentially. The, the, the mice were sicker. So yes, the net effect was to gain function for the virus that they altered. But it does not appear, at least you know, from uh, the documents provided by NIH, that that was the intent of the research. So the way I look at it, uh, Dr. Fauci and his colleagues were answering truthfully, uh, it has to do with the intent and then the, the effect. 
you have been vocal about your disappointment in health agencies throughout this pandemic when it comes to communication and messaging and trust. Do you think this adds to those problems, even if Fauci and others have been telling the truth? Because there obviously was something there. It wasn't as bad as others were depicting it. But there was gain of function Right. experiments going on, and maybe NIH didn't know about it, but it was going on. Uh, absolutely. So, so look, things are very rarely black and white, yes or no. And understanding the nuance helps the public to understand what the truth is. And we see on Capitol Hill all the time, witnesses are asked, yes or no, did you? But when it comes to science, it's very rarely a question uh, that can be answered yes or no. And if NIH came out and, uh, or Dr. Fauci or Dr. Collins uh, months ago, and in response to the, these attacks from uh, Republican men, uh, members of the Senate, particularly uh, Rand Paul, explained this difference between the intent of the research and the effect, and, and, it, uh, and really described that kind of nuance, I think the public would understand that. And it would, it would not appear that NIH was sort of withholding information but that becomes the effect of, of lack of clarity at the outset. So I think in the end, uh, Tony Fauci was being, true, uh, was being truthful, not artful in his, in his uh, testimony. Let's talk about the um, Moderna announcement. They just released their own data on kids, uh, 6 to 11, saying their dose provoked, produced a, quote, robust immune response. That has not been peer-reviewed yet. We should note that. But it does seem like promising initial information. And not surprising. So we know that Pfizer has a vaccine that's very likely to be uh, uh, signed off this week by the FDA committee, next week by uh, the CDC committee, and maybe the week after that uh, in your pediatrician's office. And the Moderna vaccine is very similar technology to the Pfizer uh, vaccine. So it's interesting. That vaccine has, uh, is using basically half the dose. And half the dose given in two shots to kids produces about one and a half times the neutralizing antibodies that adults get. So a very potent uh, vaccine. So, it, but again, the proof is in the details. So the Moderna dose for kids is 50 micrograms. Right. Uh, the Pfizer dose for that age group is 30 micrograms. I know, I mean, I, I'm not a scientist. Does that mean that the Moderna dose is better for kids because it's 50 versus 30 of Pfizer? Actually, the Pfizer dose for young kids is 10. Okay. It, it is, is 10 micrograms. So it's, it's a third of the, of the adult dose. The adult uh, Pfizer dose is 30. Well, so even more so. So, I mean, if, if, if the Moderna one is 50 and Pfizer is 10, doesn't that mean, would that mean that the Moderna shot for kids is, is stronger? Uh, it might be stronger. We'll have to see the data. We'll have to see what kind of neutralizing antibody titers it produces. Lastly, in terms of, we've, we've talked about this a few times uh, over the life of the pandemic, communications issues. Um, the Biden administration does not have an FDA commissioner. Um, they, they clearly need somebody, and they need somebody who can speak effectively about vaccines, public health. Sources tell us that President Biden spoke with Dr. Robert Califf, the former FDA commissioner from 2016 to 17. Would he be a good pick? Would he be a safe pick? I know Dr. Califf, and he'd be a phenomenal pick. He, he would come to FDA after already serving uh, for a relatively brief time as FDA commissioner, so he doesn't have to, to learn the ropes. He knows the institution well. And right now, that's really an embattled uh, agency. They had two senior uh, members of their vaccine group uh, abruptly uh, announce their retirement about a month ago. And they need some uh, stability. 
Rob is a, really a brilliant researcher. He's a proud, I'm proud to say he's a cardiologist, a world-renowned cardiologist, who I think understands the playing field very well and, and also understands, I think, quite well the importance of effective communication. So I think he would be terrific. Very important. Thank you so much, Dr. Reiner. Good to see you as always. A disturbing new development in that fatal moving movie shooting in New Mexico. CNN has learned that the assistant director who handed that gun to Alec Baldwin had been fired before from a different set over a different incident involving a gun. Stay with us. Breaking news in our national lead now on the tragic, deadly shooting on that New Mexico film set last week. CNN has just learned that the person who handed actor Alec Baldwin the gun, the assistant director on the movie Rust, had been fired from a previous film after a gun incident injured a crew member there. And as CNN's Stephanie Elam reports, there are also new reports today of at least two accidental prop gun discharges on this film set, Rust, in the days leading up to the shooting. Alec Baldwin thought he was firing a cold gun during rehearsal. Instead, it was a shot that proved fatal, a newly released affidavit shows. Director Joel Sousa told investigators Baldwin was sitting on a wooden pew, cross-drawing his weapon and pointing the revolver toward the camera lens when he heard what sounded like a whip and then loud pop, according to the search warrant affidavit. Sousa remembers seeing blood and hearing his director of photography, Helena Hutchins, complaining about her stomach and grabbing her midsection. Sousa was shot in the shoulder and Hutchins was killed. This is all raising questions about on-set gun safety. The first thing that went wrong is that they used a gun that was capable of having live ammo put in it. On the Rust set, there were concerns. The armorer, or person responsible for prop weapons, was 24-year-old Hannah Gutierrez. On a podcast last month, Gutierrez said she had recently finished her first job as head armorer on a film titled The Old Way with Nicolas Cage and that her father, an industry vet, had been teaching her about guns since she was 16. I was really nervous about it at first, and I almost didn't take the job because I wasn't sure if I was ready, but doing it, like, it went really smoothly. The affidavit says Baldwin was handed the weapon from a cart by assistant director Dave Halls, who did not know there were live rounds in the gun. Sousa told investigators that he heard Halls yell, cold gun, on set, meaning the firearm should have been empty. The ultimate arbiter of safety on a film set is the first AD, the first assistant director. But they know that they can inspect the gun, but they can't go take the gun. Halls had been the subject of safety and behavior complaints during two different 2019 productions. Prop maker Maggie Gull said Halls neglected to hold safety meetings or announce the presence of firearms on set. And the Los Angeles Times reports there were accidental prop gun discharges on the Rust set before Thursday's shooting. On October 16th, Baldwin's stunt double fired two rounds after being told the gun was cold, witnesses said. No charges have been filed, but as a producer on the film, Baldwin may have some civil liability. There are two views on that. One would be that, you know, an actor's job is just to act and they rely on the people around them to make things safe. And the other point of view is that if you have a firearm in your hand, you are responsible for what happens. Hutchins's best friend is standing by the actor. He's so not responsible for this tragic, horrific nightmare of taking the life of my friend. And I wanted him to know that I felt that really strongly because I know he's a decent human being and he feels terrible. 
Now, that film that you referenced, Jake, is a film being uh, shot in 2019. It was called Freedom's Path. And this was when a gun unexpectedly fired and it caused a sound tech to recoil. The person had to be left uh, removed from the set. And also from what we've learned now is that Hulls was also removed from the set at that point and that he was fired after that accident uh, happened. Now, we have reached out, CNN has reached out to Hulls as well as to Gutierrez to get their comment, but we have not heard back yet at this point, Jake. And Stephanie, we also just learned that the Rust film set has been shut down apparently indefinitely. Yes, that's what we're learning. A letter sent to members of the Rust crew team uh, received a letter yesterday letting them know that for now they are cooperating with the investigation and they are planning to just wrap the set while the investigation continues. And the way that they put it uh, is that until the investigations are done, it's going to be a pause rather than an end, Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam in Santa Fe, New Mexico with the latest. Thank you so much. A fuel shortage so dire that doctors are left without electricity. They're treating patients in the dark. We're live on the ground in Haiti with an escalating crisis there. Next. Topping our worldly Doctors Without Borders is warning that the human rights group may need to cut back operations in Haiti as the country's capital struggles with a crippling fuel shortage. UNICEF says hospitals are begging for help, predicting hundreds of women and children could die if facilities cannot get gasoline to run generators. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports, powerful gangs in Haiti are making a bad situation even worse. Spot protests across Port-au-Prince, burning tires below, sending black smoke into the sky. The country is in crisis once again, in part fueled by a lack of fuel. A crushing shortage of gasoline has crippled the capital city. Here, taxi drivers protesting, arguing with police outside of a gas station with no gas. We don't have a government, this man says. If we don't demand change, who will? Tires set on fire and debris thrown into the street are desperate attempts to cause enough chaos that the government tries to fix the problem. But it won't be easy. Not only is the government so broke it often can't buy enough fuel, but when some arrives, it can't get delivered. The vast majority of fuel is imported at these two locations, but gangs in Port-au-Prince are so powerful they have near complete control over this crucial stretch of highway, which means they control the flow of fuel into the capital. A gas retailer, identity hidden due to security concerns, told us what happens if you try and drive a tanker truck in to pick up fuel. So I might get kidnapped? Yeah. I might get shot? Yes, if you don't stop. I might get killed? Yes. Or at the very least, I'm going to have to pay an exorbitant bribe to get past. Of course. Haiti's government and law enforcement are either unwilling or unable to secure a flow of fuel from the ports. But not having enough fuel doesn't just mean you can't use your motorbike. Consider this. Here in Port-au-Prince, the electricity grid is not reliable. So let's say you own a small store and you sell cold drinks. In order to keep that refrigerator running, you need to use a generator. And if the fuel going into that generator is way more expensive than it was before, that means you need to charge your customers more for those cold drinks. Not having enough fuel makes all kinds of things more expensive, and that's brutal in a country already dealing with so much poverty. Because you don't have gasoline, Mm -hmm. do you think that that is risking the lives of some of your patients because they can't get the treatment that they need? Yeah, 
Of course. Of course, there's a problem for us. Kedner Pierre runs Haiti's largest cancer treatment center at Innovating Health International. He showed us this x-ray machine, like other equipment here, sitting idle because there's not enough gas to run the facility's generator full time. In another darkened room nearby, we use our phone's flashlight to see a bank of refrigerators with medicine for chemotherapy all turned off. So you put ice in there to keep this cold because you can't, yeah. you don't have enough gas. No, I don't have enough gas. To run a generator to keep these refrigerators yeah. on. This clinic is still treating patients, something that is barely happening inside the empty hallways of Hospital de la Paix. Normally packed with patients, just a few are inside now. Most days, only a handful of doctors make it to work, either because there's no gas or because they fear being kidnapped by gangs. Ketia Estil's son almost died during an asthma attack overnight. She says the doctor was using his flashlight on his phone to put my son on oxygen because there is no electricity. It's so bad, I almost lost him. Normally, all of those cribs would be filled with sick kids, but the hospital is turning away nearly every single patient that comes here because right now there's simply not enough doctors, nurses, or electricity to take care of them. That means that one of Haiti's largest hospitals is essentially not functioning. The doctors are trying, she says, but they cannot do anything. They have no help. Only God can help at this point. Perhaps God and gasoline. And Jake, as a way out of all of this, well, what is that going to be? According to a tweet from one of the leaders of a gang that is responsible for blocking these deliveries, he's saying he's not going to stop unless the prime minister of Haiti resigns. The prime minister saying he has no plans to do so. All right, Matt Rivers in Port-au-Prince, thanks so much. Could this week finally be the week for President Biden and the Democrats, the plan for his massive agenda? That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it is a life-saving treatment for COVID-19, but a CNN investigation found that many doctors don't even seem to know it's an option. So patients are missing out on this miracle treatment. Plus, a so-called bomb cyclone may just be the start of the bad weather threatening tens of millions of Americans. And leading this hour, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi telling me the plan is for the legislation the Democrats have been fighting over to get done this week. This afternoon, President Biden making yet another pitch for his agenda, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, as well as Biden's plans to expand the social safety net and combat climate change. A vote on the bipartisan infrastructure plan could happen theoretically as soon as Wednesday, a source tells CNN. And as CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, there is growing pressure on Biden to close the deal before a big foreign trip later this week. It'd be very, very positive to get it done before the trip. President Biden, for months loath to set deadlines, now explicit. The time for a deal is now. Biden set to depart for Rome in two global summits in just three days, pressing for Democrats to deliver an agreement on his sweeping economic and climate package and vote on his separate $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill as soon as Wednesday. The grace of God and the goodwill of neighbors. Fresh off a hastily scheduled meeting at his Delaware home with critical centrist holdout Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. It went well. A few more things to work out, but it went well. Biden taking his pitch to the public in New Jersey today. When we make these investments, there's going to be no stopping America. We will own the future. 
officials now receiving signals Manchin is open to raising his top-line number to $1.75 trillion from $1.5 trillion, sources say. I think we're pretty much there now. But despite clear progress, underscored by Speaker Nancy Pelosi on CNN State of the Union. With 90 percent of the bill agreed to and written, we just have some of the last uh, decisions to be made. Those final decisions, by far the thorniest. As Democrats map out scaling back or eliminating entirely critical components to secure Manchin's support. From Medicare and Medicaid expansion to paid leave, sources say, as they scramble to finalize new ways to pay for a now substantially scaled back proposal. We were ready to pay for 3.5. Right. So we certainly can pay for one point, half of that. After objections from Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, the other key centrist holdout to raising corporate and individual tax rates. Democrats weighing a tax on unrealized asset gains of billionaires, once only viewed as a progressive dream, now firmly in the mix of options, sources say, just one of several critical decisions needed in the next 24 hours to secure a win for a president just days away from the world stage. What becomes clear is this, given half a chance, the American people have never, ever, ever let their country down. So let's get this done. Let's move. And Jake, in talking to officials and sources on Capitol Hill, it's possible that two things can be true right now. The Democrats could be on the verge of a major agreement, and they can also be in the midst of the most complicated and fraught part of the negotiations. That said, White House officials making very clear they do not plan on pulling the pressure anytime soon. Now is the time for a deal, they're saying, and they continue to press forward to have something done, something agreed to, something passed by the end of this week, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill right now. And Manu, you caught up with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, uh, a central figure in these negotiations. He's explaining to you why he's been reluctant to side with those who want to expand Medicare to include coverage for hearing, dental, and, and vision. What did he have to say? Yeah, he calls it fiscally irresponsible, pushing back against many liberals in his party, including Senator Bernie Sanders, who have demanded that an expansion of Medicare be included in this final package. But in talking to Joe Manchin earlier today, he, while he believes they are on the cusp of getting a deal, he also made clear he will resist some of the key provisions here, including that expansion of Medicare, which raises questions about whether that will get into the final package. Medicare and Social Security is a lifeline to people back in West Virginia and most people around the country. And you've got to stabilize that first before you look at basically expansion. So if we're not being fiscally responsible, that's really concerning. I believe that government should be your best partner, but it shouldn't be your provider. Now, on the positive side for Democrats, he did indicate that he believes a deal, an outline can be reached this week. That is much different than the message he has been giving for months when he had called for a pause in the talks. But can this deal, if it is reached, win over progressives? That's another question, Jake. And what about the other key figure in this uh, on the moderate side, uh, Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona? She has made clear that she is going to resist the increase in the tax rate for corporations and high earners. And that has forced Democrats to look at other ways to finance this package, including a potential billionaire's tax, including IRS tax enforcement. Now, she's indicating that she could go along with that, Jake. But still, those details have not been released yet. So it remains to be seen how that goes over with the rest of the party. All right. Manu on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much here to discuss Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York. He's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congressman, good to see you. Good to see you in person. You heard President Biden sounding almost a little bit irritated. Let's get this done. Come on, let's go. Are you guys, are Democrats going to get it done? 
Look, I think the president is irritated by the obstruction that he's seen from people who ran as Democrats, but who are now talking about blocking some of the most broadly popular provisions in his economic proposals. I think we will get this done, Jake. I'm so excited about it. We are closer than we have ever been. And it's because of the progressive strategy, which insisted upon linking both of these bills. That is how we finally got Manchin and Cinema to the negotiating table. So I'm feeling vindicated, but more importantly, I'm feeling excited for what we can deliver as Democrats for the American people. Do you think that there will be enough of an agreement on this larger social safety net uh, combating climate change bill uh, that you'll be able to vote on the infrastructure bill before Biden leaves uh, for Glasgow, I think, on Thursday? It, it would be nice. Uh, but the most important thing here is to make sure that we nice. pass both of those bills. That's right. You know, we haven't seen a proposal yet right. uh, to this effect. Uh, I'm excited about what we will see. Uh, but the negotiations are still ongoing. When I hear things like Senator Manchin is still trying to keep out Medicare expansion to include dental, vision and hearing, which is popular with 83 percent or more of the American people, including hundreds of thousands of seniors in West Virginia, I think to myself, we've still got some negotiating to do. Well, I think his point, I'm not a spokesman for Manchin, but I think his point I'd like you to to respond to is we need to make sure that Medicare is solvent uh, because people need Medicare. They depend on Medicare and we can't expand it if, you know, this is going to risk blowing up the entire program. I I think that's what he was saying. I think that's the argument that he's trying to make. Uh, But the fact is, it's respectfully to the senator, an intellectually dishonest argument. And and here's why. First of all, even the $3.5 trillion proposal made by President Biden uh, is completely paid for. We know that we can raise revenue when we have the political will to do so. It's why even as Senator Sinema is saying she doesn't want to increase the corporate tax rate, uh, people are pivoting to other forms of raising revenue. Right. Uh, we want to make sure that seniors in this country, like my grandmother, who worked well past the age of retirement just to pay for the high cost of prescription drugs and medical procedures not fully covered by Medicare, are able to live in dignity in this country. And that is not asking for a handout. People pay it into Medicare and Social Security. I want to play what Speaker Pelosi told me yesterday on where this package stood, the, the one expanding the social safety net, uh, where it stands uh, as of now, at least this is as of yesterday morning. Take a listen. We've 90% of the bill agreed to and written. We just have some of the last uh, decisions to be made. Uh, it is less than we had, uh, was projected to begin with, but it's still bigger than anything we have ever done in, in, in terms of addressing the needs of America's working families. So that's a very positive way to describe it. It's still bigger than anything we've ever done in terms of addressing the needs of America's working families. And yet, I might also observe, it's right now we're hearing it's about $1.75 trillion over 10 years, which is a fraction of what the Congressional Progressive Caucus or members of it were pushing a few months ago in terms of $6 trillion. So $6 trillion down to $1.75. Do you fear that you lost too much in the negotiations in this process? It's a number that is less than the $3.5 trillion proposal proposed by the president of the United States. Yep. Uh, this is, of course, the president's agenda. This isn't the progressive agenda. This is something that our moderate president of the United States has said, look, we've got to do these popular programs that are going to be life changing for the American people. Uh, so it's not everything that we wanted. But of course, progressives are pragmatic, contrary to what some people would like to push. Uh, and so we got to make sure that we do this thing, especially as we contemplate all of the programs that will for sure make their way into this final bill. 
And I'm excited about those things. So let's talk about some of those things. Uh, Here's some of the bigger points in the social safety net package. Uh, Universal pre-K is in, along with a one-year extension for the child tax credit, which is already lifting kids out of poverty. $300 billion for climate uh, tax credits and incentives, funding for affordable housing. Now, what appears to be out from the negotiations, money for a clean electricity program, free community college tuition, dental coverage under Medicare, and to be determined, includes Medicare coverage for vision and hearing, four weeks of paid family leave, lower prescription drug prices because of an ability to negotiate uh, Medicare ability to, to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies, 150, 150 billion for other climate action. So obviously reduced from what you wanted, but if this passed, if this actually becomes law, does this give Democrats, other than Democrats uh, in New York, does this give Democrats around the country, well, just a very Democratic state, uh, Democrats around the country something to, to campaign on? These provisions and more, which are still subject to negotiation, as you know, are going to be the kinds of things that people like Terry McAuliffe can run on in that blue state known as Virginia, where I believe he's going to win election anyway. Well, we'll see. Mondaire Jones, Congressman of New York, uh, Democrat member of the House Progressive Caucus. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Uh, Coming up, new scrutiny over President Trump's endorsement of candidates with some rather messy personal histories. Plus, why are some COVID patients not getting this life-saving treatment? A CNN investigation ahead. In our politics lead, new concerns being voiced about how Donald Trump could potentially hurt Republicans in the next election. CNN's Sarah Murray takes a look now at Trump's endorsements of several Republican candidates with messy personal histories. It has some Republican officials wondering if this destruction of norms might keep their party from winning the majority. Donald Trump defied political norms, and he's doing it again post-presidency, with a round of endorsements for candidates whose troubled histories have come under scrutiny. Trump throwing his support behind Herschel Walker's Senate campaign in Georgia. Great, Herschel. What a guy. Sean Parnell's Senate push in Pennsylvania. Sean is a star. Sean, Sean Parnell. Or Max Miller's quest for Congress in Ohio. We had some really great people, and Max was one of them. Trump endorsing Miller, a former White House advisor and the ex-boyfriend of former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, even after Grisham says she told Donald and Melania Trump it was an abusive relationship. That's something I actually told the president and the first lady about, and uh, they did nothing. You know, if it didn't affect them... And as long as I was keeping quiet and being good, then I guess that kind of behavior was okay. While Grisham has not identified Miller by name, she has identified him as a congressional candidate endorsed by Trump. It was like a gut punch when I saw that he endorsed him, knowing knowing um, what happened. Miller has responded by suing her for defamation. His lawyer telling CNN Ms. Grisham's allegations that Mr. Miller was violent and physically abusive towards her are absolutely untrue and accusing her of trying to boost book sales. Grisham says the lawsuit is an attempt at intimidation, which is right out of the Trump playbook. In Georgia, Trump is all in for Walker. You know, Herschel is not only a Georgia hero, he is an American legend. Even though Walker has been accused of threatening his ex-wife and a friend of his ex-wife's in the early 2000s. An ex-girlfriend also said Walker threatened to kill her in a 2012 police report. You can get angry, but the anger that you can go out and really, really uh, hurt someone. And that's when you know you got a problem. 
The former University of Georgia football star spoke to CNN in 2008 about his diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder. And his ex-wife detailed how he had threatened her with knives and guns as he struggled with his mental illness. He held a gun to my temple and said he was going to blow my brains out. At the time, Walker said he couldn't remember being violent toward his wife, but he didn't deny the incidents. His campaign said it is sad that many in politics and the media who praised Herschel for his transparency over a decade ago are now making false statements, stereotyping, attacking, and attempting to sensationalize his past just because he is a Republican Senate candidate. The campaign also vehemently denied that he threatened his ex-girlfriend in 2012. If the allegations against Walker are disconcerting to other GOP leaders, few are speaking out. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell recently told Politico there are some things written that indicate he's had some challenges in his life. On the other hand, the good news is he's made several impressive performances on national television. I think there's every indication he's going to be a good candidate. Donald Trump has gravitated toward some people with real skeletons and scandals in their past. Trump, who faced more than a dozen allegations of sexual misconduct when he ran for president in 2016. I am a victim of one of the great political smear campaigns in the history of our country. May have blazed an easier path for GOP candidates with troubling pasts. There definitely seems to be, you know, different tolerance level. Um, And that's both inside the party and among voters, among Republican voters. I think once they swallowed Trump, that sort of conditioned the environment to, to kind of accept anything. In Pennsylvania, one of Parnell's GOP opponents, Jeff Bartos, and an aligned super PAC are testing that theory as they try to use two protection from abuse orders filed against Parnell by his estranged wife in 2017 and 2018 as political weapons. 911 calls, protection from abuse orders, and now a gag order. The real record of Sean Parnell. The protection orders were temporary, lasting only a few days, and the orders and the specific allegations against Parnell that prompted them have been expunged from court records. Parnell has called Bartos a desperate liar. Still, a judge denied Parnell's request for a gag order, which had cited his campaign and concerns for his children. His wife's lawyer celebrated the ruling, saying, The powerful and influential are not entitled to special treatment, and they should not be permitted to silence others. Now, the Parnell campaign declined to comment for this story. They did put out a memo today, though, that suggests they think the smear campaign is failing and they believe Parnell is going to be the nominee. Jake, it will not surprise you to know that Donald Trump is not backing away from any of these endorsements. A spokesperson for Trump said he is proud to endorse patriots who love our country and he will not be dissuaded from supporting great candidates due to false smear campaigns. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Uh, Let's talk about this with our panel, former Republican Congresswoman Mia Love, former Democratic Congressman Uh, Joe Kennedy. Congresswoman Love, we should emphasize allegations are not facts. It does not mean uh, that they are guilty. But in general, this is the kind of thing that has caused individuals to shy away from supporting other candidates. Republicans are telling CNN now that they're worried that the party's too willing to accept individuals that Trump has picked. These endorsements could theoretically cost them uh, the Senate majority uh, next year, if not the House majority. What do you think? Well, I think that the uh, the NR the RNC is doing what they usually do is that they look at a candidate and they say, "Okay, how is that candidate doing in his uh, state?" 
And Walker, uh, the reason why they're supporting Walker is because Walker is up by 5% right now um, against Warnock. And so they're going to put all of their eggs in one basket. The thing that I would actually say is that Walker should try and do everything he can to concentrate on his state and stay away from whether the former President Donald Trump is backing him or not. I think that that actually is going to be the thing that hurts him in the state. He should just, he's obviously doing well in his state. They're not as concerned about what is going on or what has happened in his background. Um, I think that those are things that you should always be uh, wor worried about and concerned about, but uh, he's doing well in his state and he is going to be the Republican nominee. He's polling right now over 75% uh, in the GOP mm -hmm. in the primary. So it, it looks like he's the presumptive non nominee. That's Herschel Walker in Georgia you're talking about. And, and Congressman Joe Kennedy, um, uh, let me ask you, Politico said that this is an example, these three candidates, of how Trump's political machine doesn't vet candidates. I don't know that I agree with that. I, I think that he doesn't necessarily care. What, what, what do you think? Uh, I don't think he vets and I don't think he cares. <laughs> I think both of you are right. I, I, Jake, look, I spent uh, some time, not a ton of years, but a couple of years as a prosecutor in Massachusetts. And one of those years, I was the domestic violence prosecutor in, in a small courthouse. And it is one of the most heinous crimes we have anywhere. It is the most predictable form of homicide that there is. Uh, and the data bears that out. And, and look, yes, what you indicated were allegations. Who is to say exactly what happened here? But the bottom line is when you have a former president of the United States engaging in a series of endorsements with multiple candidates that have credible allegations of abuse, for one of the most heinous crimes we have, that has to say not just something about the character of those that were endorsed, but obviously the character of the endorser. Of course, that being said, I don't think anybody is surprised about what this says about former President Trump, about his character or the, the credibility that he, he is willing to lend to women who claim abuse. Uh, Congresswoman Love, moving on to other uh, Trump endorsements, uh, not grouped in with these three individuals. Uh, Democrats have been trying to link uh, Republicans to Trump in all sorts of races. The, the Virginia's go Virginia governor's race, for example, uh, Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe uh, calling his opponent Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee, Donald Trump in khakis. It seems to be a very, very tight race. I've seen polls that have either one of them up, but just by two or three points. Um, what will the outcome of this race tell you, if anything, about how Republicans should run in the midterms in 2022? Well, you're asking someone who actually um, ran based on her constituents and based on her state and, and didn't really care about um, making sure I followed who was at the White House. But I, I would say um, that to any Republican candidate, especially um, Youngkin, that he really should just focus on what is resonating in his state. He's talking about education and making sure that parents have a voice when it comes to um, their child's education. Uh, I think that he should do everything he can to run as a, an independent, in other words, not tied to Donald Trump, a person who is going to be one, uh, uh, first and foremost, on the side of Virginia. And I think he'll do well. But I think that if he sticks to uh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump actually likes to hang on to candidates that are close so he can say he actually helped them. Um, I think uh, 
young youngkin to do everything he can to actually just run on his own and congressman kennedy i want you to take a listen to the accusation that terry mcauliffe made on the campaign trail over the weekend about republicans he was campaigning with stacey abrams who had run for governor of georgia and did not win she would be the governor of georgia today had the governor of georgia not disenfranchised 1.4 million georgia voters before the election that's what happened to stacey abrams they took the votes away. Now, to be clear, the 1.4 million voters that were removed from the rolls were removed from the rolls from 2012 until 2018. And it was based on a law that a Democratic governor, a Democratic legislature in Georgia, assigned back in the 90s. Glenn Youngkin replied to what Terry McAuliffe said there on Twitter, saying, quote, This morning, Terry McAuliffe claimed the 2018 election in Georgia was stolen from Stacey Abrams. Quote, they took the votes away, he said. One day after saying this kind of talk is, quote, running down our democracy. What do you make of it all? So uh, I think it is an, uh, a clever bait and switch by Mr. Youngkin in, in Virginia. Look, you've got a candidate there that is taking advantage of what normally happens after a uh, party sweeps control of Congress, which is some headwinds. That's that again, that's normal. Trying to capture the frustration and the passion of Trump supporters to then turn that back around off of an election that uh, where we did see a consistent effort from Republicans for not just across Georgia, but across much of the South. And of course, now coming to a crescendo with voter restrictions being put in place by states across the entire country, systematically off of concerns on voter fraud that did not happen. So it's a great deflection by Mr. Youngkin to try to put this back on, uh, on Governor McAuliffe. But the bottom line here is, I think Mia's right, this is going to be decided by the circumstances in the state. And Jake, I just got to say, I hope folks are understanding the cynical view that I think uh, the Youngkin campaign is running here by running against mask mandates in schools that, that parents don't necessarily love, but keeping a Delta variant rampant throughout communities that is then forcing government to step back in and take greater, put on greater controls to try to keep people healthy that then Republicans are running against. So by running against these controls, you feed a populism against government that keeps people sick, that forces government to have to take a more aggressive position. And it is deeply cynical. It might be effective, but man, that says something pretty, pretty dark about the tone of our partisan politics. All right, Congressman Joe Kennedy, Congresswoman Mia Love, as always, great to see both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jake. Thank you, Jake. Sudan's military has seized power in a coup and arrested the country's prime minister. The details next. In our world lead now, today the U.S. Embassy in Sudan is warning Americans in that country to, quote, shelter in place after a military coup in Sudan. Armed forces have taken over power, arresting the prime minister, detaining top cabinet members and other government officials. Their whereabouts at this hour are unknown. On top of this, Sudan's internet is down, phone calls are not connecting, and we are learning at least two people, if not more, were killed in protests against this military takeover. CNN's Nima Albagar has more now on this deadly power struggle. Sudan once again forced to a crossroads. One month after a failed coup attempt, the military arrested Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok on Monday, along with other civilian members of the transitional government, bearing all the hallmarks of military takeover, a coup. 
Since the toppling of long-serving ruler Omar al-Bashir in 2019, military and civilian groups have been sharing power in the northeast African nation, intending to lead eventually to democratic elections in 2023. The transition has seen Sudan emerge from international isolation under Bashir's nearly three-decade rule. That democratic experiment now hangs in the balance. Via a televised address, the head of Sudan's armed forces, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who is also the head of the Transitional Sovereign Council, announced that the military has dissolved the government and declared a state of emergency. We stress here that the armed forces intend to complete the democratic transition until the country's leadership is handed over to an elected civilian government. Prime Minister Hamdok's home appeared to be surrounded by armed forces on Monday. According to the Information Ministry, apparently still loyal to the country's erstwhile civilian rulers, Hamdok was told to release a statement in support of the takeover, but instead called on the people to take to the streets in protest. Tens of thousands demonstrated in Khartoum, burning tires and barricading roads. One eyewitness told CNN three key bridges had been blocked by protesters in the capital and the crowd could be heard chanting, the people are stronger and going back is impossible. What the military is doing now is a big betrayal to all the citizens on all levels. Now it is important that every individual Sudanese citizen acts and takes to the streets to not let any armed vehicle move. Military forces stormed Sudan's state broadcaster in the city of Umdurman and detained staff, according to the information ministry, which also said live bullets were fired at protesters outside Sudan's army general command. The Sudanese Professionals Association, in part responsible for the 2019 uprising, issued a call to action, saying, quote, We urge the masses to go out on the streets and occupy them, close all roads with barricades, stage a general labor strike, and not to cooperate with the putschists and use civil disobedience to confront them. Flights from Khartoum International Airport have been suspended and the internet and the mobile phone network have been severely disrupted. Sudan has been in the midst of a deep economic crisis marked by record high inflation and shortages of basic goods. The United States Embassy in Khartoum issued a statement saying it was gravely concerned, saying, quote, We call on all actors who are disrupting Sudan's transition to stand down and allow the civilian-led transitional government to continue its important work to achieve the goals of the revolution. In 2019, we were able to embed with uh, the revolutionaries, with the people on the streets of Sudan, and we saw firsthand the violence, the, um, the viciousness with which Sudanese military dealt with those calling for democracy. And there is real fear, Jake, that that could happen once again. Jake. All right, Nema Al-Bagher, thank you so much for that report. Appreciate it. It's a treatment that could save lives, but a CNN investigation found doctors across the country are often unaware of one powerful early treatment for COVID-19. We'll tell you what it is next. In our health lead, why aren't more doctors recommending a life-saving treatment to their patients ill with covid 
A CNN investigation found that monoclonal antibodies, which dramatically lower the risk of hospitalization and death if taken early enough, are often out of reach for the people who need it most. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. And Elizabeth, even if patients become their own advocate and find out about this drug, how easy is it for for them to get it before it's too late? Jake, it can be very difficult. And to illustrate this, I want to introduce you to a woman named Myra Arana. Myra is in California. She's a wife. She's a mother. And she's a leukemia survivor. She's still recovering from leukemia and treatment for leukemia. She came down with COVID last month. She called her family doctor. And the doctor said, go home, rest, take care of yourself. There's really nothing we can do. Well, that just wasn't true. Mayra happened to also call her oncologist who said, wait a minute, we can get you antibodies. She did. She got much better and she is doing fine now. Now, that's just one story, but there are large scale clinical trials that show that antibodies really do work. They dramatically reduce the chance that someone will end up in the hospital or will end up dying. So let's take a look at who monoclonal antibodies are for. They're for people like Mayra. They're for people who um, are ill in the in the first 10 days of their illness, no more than 10 days because these antibodies won't work past that. It has to be early. They can also be used to prevent infection after exposure. In other words, you've been exposed. You're not sure if you're infected or not. The antibodies can work in that situation. Also, Regeneron, who's one of the main uh, producers of this drug, uh, they have a program for immune compromised people who the vaccine did not work terribly well for them. And so they can take this sort of in place of a vaccine. It's not as good as as a vaccine, but if the vaccine didn't work for them, this is something that they can try instead. So a lot of doctors we found in our investigation did not even know about antibodies. They didn't recommend them to their patients even when they qualified for them. And then once patients do somehow manage to find out about them, many hospitals are only doing a handful of treatments. We talked to one major medical center that's treating two people per day with antibodies. Even at the height of the Delta surge, they were only treating two patients a day, whereas other hospitals say, look, we know that this can be tough. It has to be given by an intravenous drip or by shots. There's a nursing shortage. But these hospitals have made uh, uh, have made it their goal. We're going to offer monoclonal antibodies, and they do manage to do it large scale. Jay? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Let's bring in Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia. He's also a member of the FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee. Uh, Dr. Offit, as a physician, what is the biggest barrier to doctors recommending these life-saving antibodies? I think two things. I think it's it's infrastructure and also knowledge. The, the, monoclonal antibodies work if given early in infection. Um, when viral replication is at its peak, it doesn't work later in infection. By the time that you're in the hospital and you have symptoms, it's really too late. So or severe symptoms. So uh, it's just not a good infrastructure for that. You know, giving an intravenous drug really outside the hospital. We're very good at giving drugs inside the hospital. Outside, it's much tougher. And I think, and it's also lack of knowledge. I don't think people people realize just how well these monoclonal antibodies work in those groups at high risk, as Elizabeth said, um, in preventing serious and occasionally fatal illness. Well, we're still seeing about 1,600 deaths a day in the United States. Um, Should the Biden administration be pushing this more? Should hospitals be requesting more vials of this life-saving medicine? 
Well, I think they're trying. I mean, Dr. Fauci has stepped forward and talked about specifically over the last couple of days about the importance of monoclonal antibodies. At our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, for those over 12, we do have an infrastructure in place to give monoclonal antibodies for children who are at high risk of serious disease. Um, and then there are some places, you know, like like the Oxner Clinic or the Mayo Clinic that have those infrastructures in place. Um, but I think it's 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 just it's evolving. It really uh, isn't there yet. Take a listen to Dr. Fauci on Sunday. Third. So if all goes well and we get the regulatory approval and the recommendation from the CDC, it's entirely possible, if not very likely, that vaccines will be available for children from 5 to 11 within the first week or two of November. So that's Fauci talking about vaccines for kids 5 to 11. Some parents might be a little disappointed by this, considering we have heard that these vaccines could be available by Halloween. Um, this is, of course, after that, still better, better late than never. Even though they're not guarantees, should should Dr. Fauci stop making these predictions like you'll have this before Halloween or whatever because it's it's so imprecise? Well, we'll see how this plays out. I mean, the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee will meet tomorrow. We'll have a day-long discussion. Then it'll take probably a couple of days for the FDA to accept or not accept what our, our advice is. And then it goes to the CDC, which is the recommending body, on November 2nd and 3rd. So so pretty close. I think he was, if, if this all works out that, that it is recommended, he was pretty close. But again, I would just caution that we need to see how tomorrow's FDA's Vaccine Advisory meeting plays out. Moderna just released uh, its own data on kids 6 to 11, saying that their dose produced a, quote, robust immune response. The data, we should note, has not been peer-reviewed yet. But, but how promising do you find this initial information? You know, I'm, I'm where you are on this. We're in sort of in an age of science by press release. I'm just looking at the top line data like you. What I'd love to see, and I will, we will see it in the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, you know, we'll get the 100-page the, the document from the, um, from the sponsor, from the, the company, as well as the document from the FDA, and then we'll get, be able to look at all the data. So right now, top line data look good, but you really need to look behind the curtain to see just how solid those data are. A study published today in the journal Nature shows that COVID was spreading across Europe and the U.S., by January 2020, before a lot of people were even aware this was a real threat outside of China. Does that surprise you? No, I think when we were first seeing those cases, you could assume it was the tip of the iceberg, because as we now know, probably at least 50 percent of the transmissions are from asymptomatic people. So you knew you were looking at the tip of the iceberg with symptomatic people. Um, It does surprise me now. So we need to, as a world and as a country, prepare for the next pandemic. It seems likely that there will be another one at some point. What can we learn from this to make sure that the next time a highly transmissible virus is spreading around the world, it doesn't go so undetected for so long? Well, you're certainly right. I mean, we've had three pandemic potential viruses over the last 20 years. This one was obviously the worst, but I hopefully we'll learn from this. I mean, there certainly is has been already much in the way of deconstructing all the mistakes that we've made so far in this country. I mean, we have roughly 4% of the world's population and 20% of the world's deaths. We've done a lot of things wrong here. And, and frankly, the world has done a lot of things wrong. The, the most important thing, I think, is that the minute that that virus raised its head in China and you knew that it was killing people, we shouldn't have had to have depended on a whistleblower in China to tell us what was going on. You need a, a, an international uh, surveillance system that lets you know the minute these viruses pop up so we can prepare all the things that we need to prepare for to stop this. Dr. Paul Offit, thank you so much. Good to see you again. From a so-called bomb cyclone to a nor'easter, tens of millions of Americans are threatened by severe weather this week across the country. That's next.
In our national lead, a triple play of extreme weather wreaking havoc across the United States right now. Parts of California reeling from a bomb cyclone, which brought heavy flooding, devastating landslides, and forced at least one county to issue an evacuation order. Tornadoes ripped through the Midwest, causing significant damage in parts of Missouri as officials warn of new twister outbreaks this evening in the Carolinas and mid-Atlantic region. Tom Sater is in the CNN Weather Center tracking all of this for us. And Tom, we're, we're coming off a record-breaking weekend in California as the yeah. East Coast braces for what could you say is could be a very powerful nor'easter as early as tomorrow. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right, Jake. For the last week, we've been watching the forecast where a series of three potent areas of low pressure are riding in and slamming into the western U.S. This is the atmospheric river. It's really pretty much just a, a funneling of a high moisture content. Sometimes when it originates near Hawaii, we call it a pineapple express. But when it comes to what a bomb cyclone is, we see this with hurricanes. When the pressure drops, the storm gets stronger. When it drops 24 millibars in 24 hours, it's bombing out. We just had a record here, the lowest pressure ever recorded in an area of low pressure, a storm that moved off the coast of Washington. We're going to have now another bomb on the east coast and that's in the form of a nor'easter. The last system that moved through the Midwest, spawning 13 tornadoes, Chester, Illinois, Fredericktown, Missouri. That was an EF3. That's pretty strong for the month of October. Now the threat moves into the Mid-Atlantic, from North Carolina up to Washington, D.C., including the tidal Potomac, damaging winds along with the possibility of isolated tornadoes. Radar shows that storm system moving into northern Kentucky. But overnight tonight and really into tomorrow, the area of low pressure transfers its energy offshore. So this nor'easter starts to develop. This too bombs out. Hurricane force wind gusts, areas of around New England, Boston, Cape Cod, Nantucket. We're going to see coastal erosion, uh, heavy amounts of rain. We could see uh, rainfall rates at an inch an hour, heavy for parts of around Philadelphia up to New York City. So again, four to six inches, even some maybe higher than that. State of Connecticut could see maybe 60, 80,000 power outages. 30 million Americans under flash flood watches. So let's go to the West Coast because a lot to talk about. We have been in a significant drought here. Firefighters got help. The Dixie Fire, the second largest in California state history, is now 100% contained after scorching nearly 1 million acres. Sacramento had a record just uh, broken yesterday. 212 consecutive days, Jake, without any measurable rain. Well, what happened? They just set a 24-hour rainfall record. Look at this, just about five and a half inches. Just to the northwest, almost under 10 and a half. That's 80% of the annual rainfall for this area of a Blue Canyon. Orville. Orville Dam was below 30% capacity like all the other reservoirs. It's now you know, risen 17 feet. We need more. Slow and steady wins the race. We could do without the landslides, the debris flows. Of course, unfortunately, that will happen, but we've got another one on the way. Heavy snowfall already approaching 30 inches up in areas of Donner Pass to Soder Springs. This is what we've been waiting for. We can do without the headaches, but again, another one on the way. Be careful in New England. All right, Tom Sater, thanks so much for that update. The same professor teaching biology may now also be serving students at the cafeteria. We'll explain why next. In our money lead, good help is hard to find, the saying goes, and that is unless you already have it on hand, I suppose. Administrators at Michigan State University are asking professors and college staff to volunteer to help prepare food and clean tables in the campus cafeterias. The university already shut down some of its dining halls at the start of the school year because the campus was 3,500 workers short of what it needs. Some professors and students strongly objected to the invitation to help out, citing the 
enormous workload teachers already have, but Michigan state officials say several faculty members have already answered the Spartan call. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Taffer. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.